Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you, for it is only right that we do so. Father, we've confessed our shortcomings, we've sought your forgiveness, and we give you thanks that your forgiveness is assured when we confess our sins, for you are faithful and just to forgive. Father, now we entreat you to speak to us, we pray through your word. God, would you guard our hearts from the many things that may be burdening them this morning, our minds from the things that distract Father, the, the hope that we have now, we pray, is that we would see you in a way that we have not seen you before, be reminded of your gospel, that we might live in light of it for your glory. So we ask God now that you would speak through your word, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Judges, Judges, in the spirit of the new year, we're going to be turning our attention to a new portion of God's story, located this time in the Old Testament, and its seventh book, the book of Judges, as is on the screen behind me. Now, for those who can remember, last year, we studied God's revelation of Himself, His glorious gospel, and His people's right response of faith, which is a faith that works, as revealed in James's New Testament epistle, Moses' story of the Exodus, a selection of thanksgiving psalms, if you were with us here in November, and with Matthew's account of Christ's birth. Each of these scriptural selections covered different historical periods. They featured different central characters and revealed different perspectives. However, despite varying in authorship, dating, and genre, all of these texts fit into the grand narrative of God's Word, the story of God's creation, relation, and salvation of His people, all for His glorification. And and this is what I believe we're going to see once again. The glory of the God whose salvation is great. The glory of the God whose salvation is great. So Judges chapter 1. And before we read our text together, let me briefly provide the backstory along with some literary points of interest just to ensure that we all start on the same page. And so in the scope of Scripture, Judges follows the book of what? Joshua. Right, And in fact, as we're going to see in just a moment, the very first verse in Judges establishes its place in the biblical timeline as it announces the death of Joshua, the aide to camp, the successor to Moses. Joshua had assumed leadership over Israel following Moses' death, one of only two from his generation permitted to enter the promised land. Joshua, along with Caleb, had faithfully served the Lord and urged Israel to take the land that God had promised after they had spied it out. Sadly, their encouragement fell on deaf ears as their fellow spies' fears quelled any notions of military conquest within the people. And thus Israel was condemned to wander in the wilderness until all of that generation had perished. And following this judgment's fulfillment, God informed Joshua to get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give them. That was to the Israelites. And Joshua obeyed. And the book that bears his name recounts in detail Israel's journey into Canaan. It's an amazing story, as I'm sure many of you are aware, replete with adventure, intrigue, deception, defeat. And throughout, God demonstrates his faithfulness to his promises and his unrelenting demand for holiness. God cannot tolerate sin, as he makes abundantly clear in his covenant, a commitment that Joshua ironically had just led Israel to renew 
days before his death. In the final chapter of his book, Joshua 24 recounts God's leader calling all of Israel's tribes together at Shechem. And at this stage, the promised land had been entered, it had been taken, distributed, and now in preparing to depart the world, Joshua reminded the people that the task wasn't yet complete and all of the conditions that had predicated his work were still in effect. They were to fear God, remain true to the Torah of Moses, and to drive out the remaining enemies in the land. And so Joshua urged the people to fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. A seemingly simple covenant, right? And yet one that God's leader knew Israel could not keep, which is why he went on. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. Joshua knew the temptation facing Israel. And so he urged them, urged them to consider their response. A covenant wasn't a verbal arrangement that could be entered into and then broken without consequence. It was a binding pact that promised glorious provision if kept, but horrific suffering when broken. And so Joshua urged Israel to weigh their response. He even went, he even went so far as to state, you are not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. Joshua called Israel to choose for themselves, but he and his household would serve the Lord. And unsurprisingly, despite Joshua's warnings, Israel renewed their covenant after which the people returned to their apportioned land, and a short time later, Joshua died, the event with which our text picks up in Judges 1, verse 1. So, so this is the historical setting for our story this morning. It's a story possibly written by Samuel, Israel's final judge before the establishment of the monarchy, although this can't be proven conclusively. And just as a further point of interest, the book's title, Judges, might be somewhat misleading for us this morning for several reasons. First of all, None of the individuals that we're going to consider in this series, none of these individuals who we will see as judges are referred to as such. In fact, the only instance in which a specific person is referenced as the judge is in chapter 11, and this is in the story of Jephthah. However, Jephthah isn't the one who's described in this way, but Yahweh is. A second reason why this title might be misleading is that none of these so-called judges are ever described as judging. That verb in the original language of the Old Testament, in Hebrew, to judge, isn't used in any of the book's major sections. And then a third reason, and that is that these judges, so-called, actually functioned as deliverers, not legal adjudicators. In chapter 2, verse 16, our author actually provides us with the definition of a judge's role, where he says, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And so, from this explanation, we can conclude, as one commentator states, that one, the resources of these judges' authority and power was Yahweh. The purpose, number two, of their appointment wasn't judicial, but soteriological or salvific. And then third, these individuals were instruments of deliverance from external enemies, not legal aids called to settle internal disputes. And church, I simply point this out to underscore the point that I made at the very beginning regarding the theme that I believe we're going to see running throughout this book, and that is the glory of the God 
whose salvation is very great. Now we'll certainly encounter other emphases such as the Canaanization of Israel, their steady assimilation of Canaan's cultural practices and religions and ultimate abandonment of Yahweh, all of which I believe have significance for us today, particularly we in cultured Americans. But the primary note that sounds through this story is the glory of the God whose salvation is so great. So, with that introduction, let's begin reading together now. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they advanced against the people living in Deber, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Ophniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Ophniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. Then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms with the men of Judah to live among the people of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their brothers, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Therefore, it was called Hormah. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. Let me pause there. So we can appreciate the picture of divine provision that I believe our author is painting. The picture of divine provision that begins in verse 1 and 2 with these brush strokes that capture God's provision of direction. God's provision of direction. At this stage, the people have begun their occupation of the promised land. However, now that Joshua has died, no replacement has been appointed. This is Israel's first experience outside of Egypt without a clear and divinely appointed director. And you may recall, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, how prior to their arrival in Egypt, some 450 years earlier, Israel had been led by Jacob. And before Jacob, Israel, or Isaac rather. And before Isaac, who? Abraham. Exactly. Abraham. During their captivity, they'd been under the harsh 
hand of Pharaoh. They'd been slaves until Moses arrived and led them out into the desert. And then following his death, as we just discussed, Joshua had taken the reins and had directed Israel's invasion of Canaan. Only now, the people are leaderless. And so they appeal to the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight against the Canaanites? And verse 2 tells us, the Lord answered. Despite the uncertainty their future held, the threat that they still faced, and their concern for clear leadership, Israel turned to the Lord, and he provided. So we see here God's provision of direction. We also see God's provision of assurance. God's provision of assurance. Following his answer to Israel's question of who's going to go first, the Lord includes the addendum, I have given the land into their hands. So the Lord gives Israel here a sneak peek, if you will, of what's to come. The other night, uh, Melinda and I were watching a, a television show on Netflix. And for those of you who are familiar with Netflix, and you've likely shared our experience, or at least I hope you have, and we're not anomalies in this case. But we found our selection as Netflix works. We picked it out and we loaded it. Now, if you've never used Netflix, the way it works is once you've selected a show and you've watched it once, it automatically reloads where you left off. At least that's what it's supposed to do. Only we began watching, and, and at first, it seemed like the natural progression of the timeline from which we'd ended the night before. But then all of a sudden, we realized that the main antag antagonist was just gone. He'd been eliminated. He, he was dead. The night before, we had struggled to turn the TV off and go to bed because of the suspense that had been created. But now, the villain was no more. And we knew why. We just had no idea how. And so we quickly stopped the show. We went back to the main menu only to discover that Netflix had somehow registered us as having watched two intervening shows. So we went back to the show we were supposed to be watching. But of course, all the suspense was gone because we knew what had happened. We'd already seen it. And guys, that's exactly what I believe our author is describing here in our text. He's painting this picture of divine provision evidenced by the Lord's direction, the Lord's assurance, and then third, his provision of power, of power. Verse 4, we're told that when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. So the victory came about as Judah battled, but their enemies were brought into their hands by the power of God, Yahweh's power. And so right here, let me just... Speak briefly to a concern that I believe we often feel, we, we 21st century folk, as we read Old Testament narratives such as this. And this sentiment regards the apparent injustice of Israel's conquest of Canaan. You know, there are a great many today who struggle to reconcile the brutality of this Old Testament campaign with the New Testament ethos of love. Adonai Bezik's experience, we all chuckled here. It's spine chilling, it's toe and thumb tingling. Unintended. For, for many, what took place in Canaan clearly contradicts the divine character described in the Gospels along with the ethic promoted by Christ. For no one deserves what we're reading about here, right? I mean, we ought to see Israel loving their neighbors, not attacking them, not annihilating them, caring for the broken, not causing the breaking. And yet when we express such consternation, church, I believe we've lost the biblical perspective that clearly establishes the fact that Canaan's inhabitants were not innocents. Moses humbled Israel when in Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 through 6, he emphatically informed them that Yahweh wasn't giving them the land of Canaan because they were so godly, but because the Canaanites 
we're so grossly wicked. Leviticus, the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy provide all the gory details so no one can walk away having sufficiently studied the scriptures and believe that Canaan was hard done by. So church, as we approach this text, we've got to keep in mind that Israel was God's instrument of justice upon a corrupt and perverted people. Thus he gave them the victory by his power. So this picture that our author is painting marks with God's provision of direction, assurance, power, and then a fourth, his provision of his presence. His presence. The final sentence that we read before our pause, verse 19, declares the Lord was with the men of Judah. So up until this point, Israel has sought God's direction, received his assurance, witnessed his power, and now experienced his presence. Despite being leaderless, In the eyes of the world, these 12 tribes have not failed to move forward because God provides. And their unity amidst great diversity is is a further testimony to God's provision as throughout these first 19 verses that we've just read, we see Simeon assisting Judah, then Judah aiding Simeon, and their success signaled God's provision as he enabled them to overcome their enemies so long as they work together. And church, I believe that as we consider this picture today, God's provision today. We, as Israel before us, can attest to its authenticity, can we not? For God has given us direction, not only as we've sought his counsel in specific situations, but much more significantly in the person of his son, who is the way. Thomas asked the Lord, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus so memorably responded, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Emmanuel, God has given us direction in the person of his son, and he has provided us with assurance. As the Apostle Paul declared to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And then when he wrote to the Romans, Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No maybes. You will be saved. This is the assurance that we have been given and the experience of his power as we know the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Therefore, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. If God is for us, who can be against us? We face no temptation from which God has not provided us with the power to stand firm. And therefore, we stand firm, fixed in him, knowing that he has given us his very presence, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into eternal life and the praise of his glory. So church, as Judges begins, I believe the author desired to paint a picture of God's provision along with teaching what one pastor theologian described as a theological geography lesson. So a theological geography lesson. So would you look back with me to our text there to the second half of verse 19 and our story continues. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from it, the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites lived there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them when they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz. They spy, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. 
He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bashan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibleam or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. And those living in Beit Shemeth and Beit Anath because became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Ajalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph increased, they too were forced into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. Now, now you see why this second point regards geography. And I wanted to read this section in its entirety because we tend to hit patches of place names like this and just skim through, wondering, as one commentator remarked, if in this instance the pen of inspiration wasn't picked up by an angry cartographer. I mean, such sections can appear lifeless. But church, and they have contemporary relevance. Oh my gosh, they do. Because that, that is exactly what was going on here. The purpose of these verses isn't geographical tedium, but theological accusation. Hence the point, a theological geography lesson. From verse 1, which we read earlier, through verse 20, we are basically given a record of spiritual, of spiritual sensitivity, political support, and military success. However, what follows, those words that we just read, in that section, scholars have aptly named it the failure of the north. I mean, seven times in those verses we read, verse 27, verse 28, verse 29, 30, 31, 32. Then again in verse 33, seven times our author accuses Israel of not driving out the inhabitants of the land. Now, as one considers these locations, there is most certainly a pragmatic reason that God desired Israel to have absolute control over them. In the timeline of their occupation of Canaan, Israel would come to see the strategic folly of failing to possess Beit Shan. It's a, a massive site, which one scholar notes guarded the, the juncture of the Jordan and Jezreel valleys through which passed the main arteries of the ancient world. They, they would live to regret the failure to dominate Ta'anach, Ibleum, and Megiddo, which were crucial fortresses along the plain of Israelim. And one commentator notes, Riley, that, that had they held these positions, maybe they could have prevented cocky Sisera, who we'll encounter in a couple weeks, that they could have prevented Sisera from strutting all over Israel. So certainly there were pragmatic reasons for God's decree. However, they were not his principal concern. God desired that his people be spiritually set apart. So as he'd warned through Moses back in Exodus 23, do not let them, that's the Canaanites, do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Yahweh's concern wasn't with Canaan's military strength. It was their religion's toxicity. It's like a cancer. Any vestiges could metastasize and cause horrendous harm, even death. Now, granted, 
Not all of these peoples were to be eliminated in a single effort, as is clear by what we, we read there, verses 1 through 19. And that confirms God's words to Moses, also spoken in Exodus 23, where he declared, I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hittites, Canaanites, and Hivites out of your way, but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. So Israel's removal of their enemies wouldn't happen all at once, but it was to happen. They couldn't settle and assimilate, marrying each other's children and expect their covenant to remain intact. And friends, I believe that the warning bells in this text toll loudly for the church today, particularly as it's expressed in our nation. As, as people, we, we have so conflated nationalism with faith, patriotism with membership to Christ's church, and capitalism with evangelism. For, for many, I believe, in our country today, Christianity is just one more product to flog with the church as its most prominent retailer. Emmanuel, if you could, and I don't know that we can do this, but if you could, just because our culture's values are so ingrained in our psyche, but if you could, try and imagine yourself as a first century Christian visiting a 21st century American church. How much do you think you would recognize? And I'm not speaking about the encultured expression given the church in our 21st century American climate. I mean the biblical identity that gathered first century Christians and 21st century Christians ought to share. And and there's a, a whole lot more to say on this point, and we'll hold off right now because I think this is a refrain that we're going to hear our author sound constantly. But, but I would encourage you, take some time as you look to this coming year, as you look to 2019, try to discern for yourself what is biblical Christianity and how does it differ from what we say we see so prominently expressed in these churches our nation considers mega. You know, our author repeatedly accuses Israel of failure to drive the Canaanites from the land. Ironically, he describes also her military success. Four times in our text, those verses that we just read, we're told that the Canaanites or the Amorites became subject to Israel. Verse 28, verse 30, again verse 33 and 35. And so, so what's going on? If the tribes are failing to fulfill the covenant, then why do we read about God granting them success? And I believe, as do others, that while there was a time when Israel was unable to rid the land of, say, the, the, the Canaanites' his iron chariots or the, the Jebusites who were entrenched in Jerusalem, the time came when they were strong enough. Verse 28, if you were to look back, tells us that when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Isn't that heartbreaking? Finally enabled by God's grace to purge the land as they were called of their enemies, Israel instead chose to profit from their labor. And this is how chapter 1 concludes. Now Israel is most certainly successful in their conquest. However, they are also clearly disobedient. That's a strange pairing for God's people, isn't it? You know, how, how, but it's one I believe that we, again, need to heed. Because how often, church, how often do we allow our culture's metrics of success to be the measure of our spiritual well-being? How often do we look to numbers, 
as an example, of, say, attendance or size of facility or, or, or giving or number of programs or the size of your choir or worship team, whatever. These are figures that I believe so often mask true spiritual health and vitality. For just as Israel occupied the promised land and yet were infused by pagan peoples whose values slowly ate away at their character, leading them to ignore sin, to distance themselves from one another in regards to matters of eternal importance and ultimately to abandon God. I, I fear that there are a great many congregations in our nation in which this is reality. Emmanuel, may this not be true of us. This year, may we be vigilant to hold one another up before the Lord in prayer, to daily pray through our prayer directories, petitioning our God to keep us pure, to make us one that we might be instruments of His gospel here in our community and beyond. Further, may we faithfully encourage one another in the gospel and exhort each other to live worthy of the gospel. So we've seen our author paint a picture I believe, of divine provision. Teach a lesson on theological geography. Now I'd like us to consider his question of genuine repentance. Question of genuine repentance. Would you look back with me now to chapter 2 and find verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, which reads, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said... I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And let's stop there. Church, in this interaction that occurs at Bochum, it's a term which conveniently means weepers, as in criers or, or wailers. In this interaction, God graciously but judiciously confronts his people. In light of their failure, which has been established over and over, Yahweh accuses Israel of breaking the covenant, the very thing that we saw together. Joshua had warned that would happen and that the people had insisted could never happen. The Lord informs Israel of the discipline and judgment that they will now endure. They will no longer receive His promised help. But, but you notice the primary peril here is spiritual. It's not physical. As these people will be, as described, thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare. So tragic. So how does Israel respond? By doing the very thing for which the site is named, weeping. They appear broken over their sin and their sentence, which is a good thing. It leads them, we're told, to offer a sacrifice. Oh, church, that we were still so moved by sins. I believe today conviction like this is in short supply because we're a people prone to comparison. Now, we may accept our sin, but rather than viewing it as a barrier to relationship with God, we compare its offense to that of our neighbor's sin as a means of therapy. Israel is broken. And they weep, and we're told they offer sacrifices. However, the text doesn't say if these sentiments led to anything substantial. And church, how often do our responses end with tears? How, how often are our spiritual experiences marked by emotional excesses that 
fail to be translated into life change. The God of the Bible desires mercy, not sacrifice. He desires radical heart change, not simple sentimentality. The mark of a Christian isn't a moment of grief over personal failure, poignantly expressed by tears, but a heart, mind, soul transformation that evidences itself in a daily battle to drive out the cancer, which is sin, and to live in a manner that glorifies the God who has brought us into His kingdom by His grace through faith in His Son. This is the very great salvation of God that I believe our author is determined that we see as we study this book together. May we see it, church, and may we seek to live in light of it to His glory in 2019. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are a God who is faithful. Lord, we are not. The story of Israel makes clear not a one of us is faithful. Not a one of us could keep the covenant that you made with your people. We are Israel, each and every one. Father, and in this story that you have given us in your word, the point is to point us, to direct us to our dependence wholly upon you for salvation. Father, and the beauty of this story is that there is joy, hope, and salvation in you. You, God, who continues to show your love to us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Father, as you humble us, as you lead us to a realization of our brokenness, as we confess our sin, God, you are faithful and you forgive us. And Lord, as your church, we seek your forgiveness. For there are so many things in our culture that we have accommodated, that we have assimilated. Lord, that now often we don't know what is biblical and faithful and what is not. Lord God, this year as we look to the, to the coming 52 weeks, Lord, would you lead us deeper into an understanding of what you desire your church to look like, the bride of Christ. Father, might our expressions of worship that reflect who we are living in this day, Father, might they be clear of things that are like what we see discussed in these texts. God values priorities that we've adopted, that we've accepted because they're familiar. They may even sound right because we've heard them since childhood, but Lord, we've never measured them against the truth of your word. And God, we pray that we would not allow our world's measure of success to be the measure by which we evaluate ourselves. For Father, you make abundantly clear sin is your most significant concern. For where sin resides, then there is no relationship. Father, might we be so careful as we seek to address sin in our own lives, most importantly, Father, and as a church, as we seek to address sin in our lives. Father, thank you that there is healing and hope for we who are sinful and that it is found in Jesus. Father, we thank you for the hope that you extend even today 
having heard the gospel, the means by which you determine to save men and women. God, if there are those here today who have not been brought to life, we pray that having heard your gospel, God, you have worked in that way and for your glory. And Lord, and as we close in a moment and sing, God, would you lead them to find someone, come talk to myself so that they might have hope and have that hope clearly understood so that they can celebrate with the rest of us who have been saved by grace. Father, this is our joy as we look forward to this year. Father, we pray that you would lead us into a deeper, richer appreciation of all that is ours, we who are in union with you through Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.